Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. With in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications, GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is me. For those of you who don't know who I am, I am Robert Berger. I am with the Communications Board, and we are uh, an executive producer for the Chief Influencer podcast. And we're very excited for this initiative that we started several months ago. As a producer for this podcast, I get a lot of feedback on the show, it's a guest, and I get many questions such as, what did you think about this particular episode? That guest was amazing. They had this incredible insight and provided these clear, concise examples to how they're influencing those around them. It's been an unbelievable honor to interview these people and have them and recognize them as chief influencers. So I want to take this moment in this special episode to reflect back and share the thoughts that I have on particular episodes. So in this episode right now, I'm going to walk through my thoughts, some of the common questions that I get submitted to our producers, buyer listeners, but also as an added bonus item, whenever I mention that particular episode, we're going to put up my favorite clip from that particular show. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy. In our conversations with chief influencers, we tend to see common themes across various episodes. But we also like it when we see chief influencers go against the grain and use unlikely methods to reach their audiences. Here are a few segments, one from Emma Wade Smith on how she uses LinkedIn, and another one from Monica Goldson on how she uses phone town halls. I'm slightly unnerved to be thought of as a trailblazer on LinkedIn. I'm like slightly considering whether I, I'm doing the right thing. It all started for me when I became the Trade Commissioner for Africa. What's that, seven, eight years ago? And I really knew that I had this vast audience across 54 countries, as well as in the UK, to try to reach with my messaging. And I figured... However many planes I jumped on, however many time zones I crossed, I would never, and frankly, however many speaking engagements I took and conferences I attended, I would never be able to get beyond a very small percentage of those people that I wanted to try to connect with. And so in looking at the different platforms, LinkedIn seemed a really obvious one for me because of that business community that it represents. And that's been that's been terrific. And I've really rolled that over into the role I have have now in North America. 
And one of the things I really love about it is that it is so focused on the corporate world. It's not just about policymakers. It's also about the corporate leaders and the kinds of issues that they're facing in their companies and with the micro and the macro environment that they're dealing with. So it's a terrific way for me to stay informed about what's happening in those companies, what business leaders are thinking about the achievements they celebrate, some of the reports that they're working on. It's been terrific for keeping me informed as well as for helping me to inform others about what we're up to. How do you perceive LinkedIn now, several years later, I think you maybe said seven years from when you started, what lessons have you learned using it to maximize that platform? I'm an enthusiast. And so my natural instinct getting onto LinkedIn is to so much stuff because actually there's a terrific feed that comes through from business leaders and and others right across the world. And I've learned over time that less can be more. And my team here in particular have really helped me to appreciate that. It's recognizing the power of the power of the personal comment. And actually, probably even more important than all of that, the importance of engaging in a conversation so that this isn't just a sort of megaphone moment in one directional traffic. It's for me, the bits that I love most. So when you can see people engaging and commenting and responding. So that for me is probably the learning I've been on. Don't like everything, be quite choosy and use that moment wisely, but also to engage in a conversation as much as that's possible to do. I think the other thing is actually to try stuff. And I think that LinkedIn has brought in a number of innovations over the last few years, and its users have also innovated within the platform. I try to do as much sort of video or imagery as possible, because I think that's an increasingly effective way to get people's attention and hold it for a few seconds at least while we try to impart some knowledge. Thinking about how we do that, how we use polling and that sort of thing to to really engage the audience. Something that strikes me as you talk about seeing content in the feed, liking it, joining a conversation, is that there are a number of leaders whose instinct is, yes, I should be on this platform Let me just hand the keys to someone and have them do it for me. And I'm never going to really look at it myself. But it obviously is a different animal that when you actually are logging in and liking, and that's been your approach. So can you talk about the importance of that? And if you had a colleague, maybe a peer of yours say, oh, I'm thinking of getting on LinkedIn like you, I'm just going to have a person on my team just totally run it for me. I'm not going to have the app on my phone. I'm not going to look at it. Will that work? What would you say to that leader to encourage them to take a more hands-on approach like you have? Yeah, I can understand why that's tempting. And I certainly know people that do that. But when I right at the very start, when I first was thinking, how do I reach this extraordinary diverse audience? And I was looking at LinkedIn and a very good friend of mine in South Africa said to me, look, if you're going to do this, and I think you should, you want it to be natural. You want it to be authentic. You want to make it a conversation. You want it to be interesting. But most of all, you really want to be you. People will spot it a mile off if you are a corporate robotic voice tripping out the sort of the standard management speak that people hear sometimes. And it was really important to me right from the very start that people got a sense of who I am and the passion and the energy that I personally bring to the role and to sustain that. 
And it's really important to be involved personally. I get messages through LinkedIn all the time. Occasionally they'll be like, I don't know if you monitor this account yourself. And I'm like, yes, I absolutely do. Because that is a really important part of what makes LinkedIn such a powerful platform and a vehicle for me is that it's it's not just about staying on top of the people you're already connected to. It's about meeting new people. It's about, frankly, finding out more about people that you know you're going to go and meet. So, you know, the kinds of events that you go to as well, if you know who's going to be in the room, why would you not want to find out as much as you can about them? It can really help with those icebreakers for people who are networking in person. It can help with follow-up. The personal messaging thing has been amazing and has helped me so many times when I've had a call from a minister you said, do we know somebody in this company? And I'm like, possibly. And then, so you go into LinkedIn and you realize that either you're directly connected to somebody who can take you to the who you need, or you can you find your way. And so it's an amazingly powerful network. All of that said, I have to recognize that this is also a team effort. And I simply don't have the time or the skills, frankly, to produce all the content that goes up onto my posts. The content producers and the marketing and the comms team that I have here are brilliant. And we brainstorm all the time. What are the issues? How do we best get those messages across? What kind of visuals, what kind of imagery, what kind of recordings do we want to do? How do we keep innovating and adapting? to keep things fresh and to kind of keep the audience interested. And the team here are an amazing help to enable me to do more than simply say in direct prose, I've been here and I've done that, or I think about this. So it's, yeah, but I do think that personal involvement really matters and helps shape and frame the look and feel of what's coming out there. Let me start with students because that's the core of our work. And um, many of the social media outlets that I might use is not what my students use. So quickly, I had to learn early on, hey, um, the students in PGCPS want to communicate either through Twitter or Instagram, period. Um, while we, they, every student has an email address, they don't always check their email in a timely fashion. And the one place that I know they're always going to go to to check weather is Twitter. Like they're waiting for me on Twitter if we have inclement weather to close school. Like that's the most important thing for many of them on any given day. But if I need to get some information out to them quickly um, and they're only going to want instant information that's really short snippets. So I, I use Twitter for them. For my parents, what I found is we've had to use a variety of tools for our parents. And, and I have an amazing communications team who really unpacks and we review our analytics on a monthly basis because things, times and things change. So we've learned over time, it's a variety of tools. It starts with the weekly newsletter that parents can expect to receive every Monday. And that newsletter has lots of graphics, um, short snippets of information so that they can quickly access the information. Um, what I also found to be extremely popular during the pandemic were these telephone town halls where um, we we use a company and we dial out to all of our homes that we have access to their phone numbers to. Um, and it literally calls them and they answer. And we do a one hour telephone town hall where probably the first 15 to 20 minutes, I'm giving information that I want our parents and our community to know about. 
So you don't have to be a PGCPS parent. You can also go online and sign up. And we also publish it and you can call in as well. And on those calls, we get about 20,000 or more people on those calls, 20, 30, 40,000 people on those calls. And after 15, 20 minutes of receiving information from me, they then have an opportunity to ask me any question that they so choose. I prefer for the questions to be about the topic that I'm potentially discussing. But let me be full disclosure. Sometimes the questions do not have anything to do with the topic. Um, but I think I, my parents in the community liked it because they know it's not canned information. Like you can't make up the questions that come from the community members. But for me, I'm uneasy because I have to be prepared for anything that comes. But it's an extremely popular tool um, that we do. And we do it on a quarterly basis. And now the other thing that we use for parents is because we're a one-to-one school district. So that means that every child has a tech technological device in front of them. Most of our parents now participate in PTSA meetings through Zoom now. They don't literally have to go into the brick and mortar in order to get information. And so now that's another tool that we've been using. For staff, I know you're like, oh my gosh, it's it's different. For staff, they also get a newsletter, but they get their newsletters on Friday because we wanted to make sure that um, they still get the newsletter we sent to the community on Monday, but we do different content for staff on Friday where we highlight staff as well. And I've also done robocalls for just staff because sometimes their questions, a lot of times related to topics are different because they're what I call in the trenches with the work. So we do a robocall with them. And the other thing that seems to work well with my staff is that um, I have a policy that we respond to emails within 48 hours. So it almost makes our staff feel that they have an open door policy um, and they can come in and see me at any time, but it's typically via email. Um, And then for our elected officials, what they seem to like is in our weekly newsletter, there is this one minute summary that we talk about what's happening for the week. Our elected officials love that one minute video snippet. They use it in their newsletters and it keeps them updated. The other thing that I do with our elected officials, if there's something major that's happening in their district, I typically will send them an email. And then I will then use a text message to say, can you check your email real quick? Mm. Because they don't always check their email. But I do that because I want to make sure that they have the correct facts around what's happening and they see a lot of constituents. So if they hear a story that while they're out, they can say, yeah, no, that's not actually accurate. This is the information that I received directly from the school district. And then the last one is the Board of Education. So um, I use all of those methods. I use um, text messaging for them, emails for them. They get a weekly newsletter from me every week, just saying what's happening um, in our school district. And then now they've asked for me to provide them every month. So the first day of every month, I give them information that I need their assistance in pushing out on their listserv, on their Facebook pages, their LinkedIn sites um, that they do in their Saturday coffees they talk about. And I send that every month, the first day of every month. So each group gets something different. Yeah. Okay. I'm very active on social media. Um, 
my accounts, which you can find pretty much on any social media network at Rob Sand IA. I run them. I'm the one tweeting. I'm the one replying. And uh, I try to be just more active and more transparent in terms of what's going on in governance and also just who I am in general. I'd love to dive in more on that in terms of social media. Sure. Because one, uh, we know so many leaders just try to delegate their social media to somebody on their team. And you know, it doesn't come through in the same level of authenticity. You've gone even beyond, I think, just the fact that you're you're managing those accounts. Um, you have this Transparency Tuesday um, thing that you do on Facebook Live, and you use that to connect with your constituents each week. And sometimes they're shorter, sometimes they're longer. You answer people's questions, you tell yeah. them what's going on. I, you know, I you have tens of thousands of viewers, sometimes even much more than that, depending on the week. Can you talk about how that came about? Um, obviously, you see some value in it because you keep doing it. You're a really busy guy yeah. doing it, so it must be valuable. Because I think leaders who are in all different <clears throat> industries are going to find this really interesting. They might find it exciting and yet kind of scary and daunting to even think about doing that. I think a lot of people are nervous by the idea of live anything. A lot of people in elected office. Uh, to me, if I'm live on something, it's like, well, I, I am live. <laughs> like. We're all live. Like I'm a human being. I, I, I'm comfortable in my own skin. It's okay if I make a mistake. We all make mistakes. So Transparency Tuesdays, if, if anybody's on Facebook, you can tune in. Again, I'm at Rob Sandia every Tuesday at 7.45 p.m. or very close to then if I am getting the kids home from basketball game. You know, it's, it's usually right about 7.45 p.m. on the nose. Uh, I just, I start a live broadcast. I tell people what I did that week. Usually I highlight the things that are a little bit unusual and I don't, I don't get into granular level details on each thing that I did. It's just a kind of a list of highlights. It could be three things that stuck out or it could be 10 things that stuck out if it was an interesting, really interesting week. And maybe one of them is uh, a, a moment to sort of shed a little light on what's happening in government for people and give them a little bit more detail. But then at the end, I also always, and I, and I try to see, I, I have, I'll have the comments on the screen as I'm talking. Sometimes I'll catch them while I'm talking, but I, I try to catch questions and comments at the end by, by scrolling through as much as I can. And so some, sometimes Transparency Tuesday is three minutes long. I just tell people what I did. And in the three minutes that I'm on there, nobody has added any questions and I sign off. Sometimes it's 20 minutes. It could be that something controversial or, or uh, there's a lot of big news going on, whether it's controversial or not. It could be that our office released a special report that people have a lot of questions about, for example, uh, Medicaid. Or it just could be that we're getting into a topic that people are feeling chatty about. And I just try to answer their questions as best I can. It's not really that different from having a town hall um, in person, you know, which is, again, what I do with all 100 counties, county seats. But it's just an opportunity for people to tune in and ask a question of a statewide elected official. I, I really like the idea, by the way, because elected officials are so distant. They are so cloistered. And some of that is by design. I think people with a lot of staff and consultants around them try to keep their elected away from people because they don't want a mistake. I think some of it is inevitable. If you're representing a state in Washington, D.C., you are gone a lot because the way the system currently works requires you to be in Washington, right? But I don't think that that distance is a good thing. I think it's important for people to have a sense of the ability to reach their government, to reach 
lovers of whatever degree of power, and to actually have an interaction there, to have a, a check-in point. And so when you ask about you know, like what the impact is or what the value of it is, to me, a big part of the value is just people knowing, hey, there's one guy in elected office, at least, who anytime I want, if I have a thing I'm thinking about, I can just remember, hey, I should tune in at 7.45 p.m. for Transparency Tuesdays, and I can talk to the Iowa State Auditor and ask him a question about that. And I think that level of accessibility is honestly really important. This is, you know, the, the 3 million people in the state of Iowa here, uh, 3.1 million, those are my bosses. Those are people who pay taxes. They run the state and are working overseeing how those tax dollars are spent impacts their lives. So for me to be able to check in with them and for them to have a sense of the ability to check in, even if they don't use it a lot, I think that sense of the ability to do it is still important too. And of course, we talk about authenticity in the podcast. Authenticity is always key in reaching out audiences and meeting them where they are. Now, I personally believe that authenticity is not just being genuine, but it's about being original and having a positive value for people. This is a primary theme across Chief Influencer episodes from Secretary Tony Woods to Katie Harbeth to Daniel Wezzo. Chief influencers underscore the importance of being authentic. The same goes with our second episode with Iowa State Auditor Rob Sand. Here are some of those clips from those episodes. So one of the risks when I was coming out was that obviously I would lose my career. Um, I was slated to go back and teach at West Point, which was a dream of mine uh, because it made such an impact on me. So I lost that opportunity or that ability. And one of the risks was that I would have to pay back uh, the tuition earned for uh, going to grad school at Harvard. I was fortunate that that was, was, was not the case, but, but that was actually one of the major reasons that motivated me to return uh, after the policy was repealed. I felt, um, and I felt actually after I graduated from West Point, that I owe our country a debt of gratitude. Uh, the military, uh, like it does for so many folks who are looking for a pathway into the middle class, provided me with an exceptional opportunity, an exceptional education, a chance to give back and serve my country. And so my hope was to continue to do that for the long term. Um, but, you know, I think to your, your, your broader question, one of the things that I, you know, I've always struggled with, right? At the end of the day, I have the privilege of, of focusing on reaching veterans and serving their needs. And that is, a, that is one component of who I am. But to our earlier conversation, being able to make sure that veterans know that, you know, they're, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, um, you know, um, perhaps doesn't look like the average conception of what a veteran is, is thought to be, I think is important. Uh, so I make it a point to go out of my way to mention my, my, my husband where I, where I can or the fact that we're married, right? There's always that kind of moment when you're being introduced at events or um, introduced right before you speak, where, you know, part of it is the coming out process, right? That's by including it in my bio. But I think that's actually just quite important to, uh, to our mission. Uh, to make sure that uh, veterans know that um, all of them are reflected in our work. They, they, they know that we um, care about their needs. We advocate for veterans whose experiences might be on the margins. Uh, so looking for veterans who, in the case of the retirement home that I run, who are experiencing, um, whether it's loneliness, social isolation, or uh, in the case of a poor, poor performing facility, neglect and abuse. Uh, veterans who are experiencing homelessness or who might be struggling with mental health uh, challenges or risk of suicide, uh, substance misuse, right? So thinking about 
veterans who are potentially on the margins. Um, I've very much appreciated the opportunity to advocate for trans veterans and ensuring that they're getting the rights that they've earned. Um, and I think by being open and authentic about who I am, it invites um, advocacy organizations and veteran serving organizations to reach out to me who may not have otherwise done so and say, hey, we realize you're, you're a champion for veterans of all types. Uh, we, want, we want your help in amplifying our voice. Uh, and that, to me, is how I reach a wider, more diverse range of veterans. When I left Facebook, I spent about a year, the year of COVID, really thinking about what I wanted next in my career. Because the end of 2020 was 10 years of Facebook for me. I was turning 40. And it was going to be the end of the 2020 election. And so if there was ever a time to make a change, it felt like that might be a good one. And I knew I wanted to stay in the tech and democracy space. I knew I wanted to continue to work both in the U.S. and international. And I developed three pillars of where I wanted my work to focus on. One was mentorship. I really enjoyed being a manager. I also really like working with people um, as they're trying to think about how to get into this space or what their next career move might be. The second one was voice, building, continuing to build up my brand as a thought leader in this space I had done a lot of public speaking before, but it was on behalf of Facebook or behalf of whomever I was working for. It wasn't my own, always my own voice. And so that was another one. And then the third one was I was build because I didn't want to just be talking about these problems. I also wanted to be contributing to solutions to those problems. So around the voice one, you know, it was an era of, and still is, of everybody kind of creating a sub stack. It reminds me of the early 2000s when I created my Blogspot blog. Like everybody was creating a Blogspot blog um, around it all. And I took the first six months of me being off of Facebook to work with a writing coach a little bit to kind of, I had to build up my confidence in my writing. I hadn't written a lot when I was at at Facebook. Um, I was a journalism major, but I hadn't really exercised those muscles in a while. Um, I also had started tweeting a bit more and kind of getting comfortable and kind of thinking about, okay, what would I want my newsletter to focus on? What would I want to write about? How often would I want to write, et cetera? And I really liked Substack because I found the interface to be really easy to use. Um, I liked how you own your email list. So should they ever cease existing or I'd be happy with choices they're making or something like that, I can take that email list and port it to somewhere else. And then um, they didn't have this when I first launched it, but now they've added things like recommendations that has just been so helpful for me in terms of discoverability by people about my Substack to continue to get subscriptions. Uh, LinkedIn and others have also been great contributors to that. Um, but I've just been a big fan of how they're very writer centric. I do like also their their free speech values, which I know we can debate about and, and argue about. But I did really appreciate those. And so, yeah, I started it in September, six, September 16th, 2021, which was like a couple of days before the Facebook files and the Francis Haugen stories and the Wall Street Journal dropped, which was not timed. I did not know that was going to happen. But immediately people were like having somebody like me who had been on the inside to share a bit more of my perspective of the stories that they were seeing was I, I found a lot of value in it because it helped me first and foremost to just think through where, how, where I stood on these things and starting the newsletter is really for me selfishly. I was like, if I can get others to read it, fantastic. But I want to, I want to improve my writing. I want a, a process in which I can think through how I'm thinking about these things, develop those talking points, those theories, et cetera. 
And I knew that writing could do that. And so, and then I really loved the discipline of having to write the newsletter and having, I work as a journalism major, deadlines are key for me. Um, and so they're self-imposed, but having them um, has been a huge uh, help in helping me to just make sure that I continue to work on this skill set and trying to get it out there. I want to talk a little bit about the evolution of it in a second. But first, um, you mentioned, you know, when you were speaking on behalf of Facebook, that's very different from sort of finding your own voice. And I think a lot of leaders probably, even if they are in a role where, you know, they may speak on behalf of a brand, they also have forums where they have to, you know, find their own voice and there's an opportunity to do that. So um, can you talk a little bit about your process around that of finding your your voice because I think that's something that many people would be interested in. And I think I'm still trying to find it. I think that it continues to evolve, right? And thinking through it. First and foremost was there's a difference between being on your own like I am versus inside of a company, right? Um, when I was inside the company, the things I was talking about, frankly, it's not that I disagreed with them not at all cuz that would have been very hard for me to go out and publicly you know defend or talk about what we were doing but what i was able to do when i left the company is now i can think critically back on the things that I, decisions i was a part of and i made and what would i do differently what would i do the same how can i describe that to people how can i take the lessons learned from that period of time and now apply them to what would I do if I were in the situation of these other folks that are now having to grapple with some of these issues, but they're slightly, they're slightly different. And my goal in, in developing this was that when, you know, when I left Facebook, people, it was March of 21, and it, the only people that were really speaking out were either tech haters or they worked inside the companies. Mm. And I really thought there needed to be a more nuanced voice that could bring that perspective to these situations and also provide it from a center-right perspective. I just didn't see that out there in the ecosystem. And that was something I wanted to be known for. And I knew that when I came out of the company, different people were going to have different thoughts of what I might actually be trying to do. What were my motives? What would I be doing? And I could say what my motives were, but I knew that it was really going to be my actions and what I did over time that would really back that up. Um, and so that's also another thing of sort of that thought process of finding my voice in writing was I try to A, share a bit about myself at every newsletter of sort of like where I am, what I'm doing, helps them to get a little bit, know a little bit more about who I am. And then when I go into the analysis piece, um, also weaving maybe my story or my perspectives or even even trying to call out what my own biases might be as I'm trying to go through that so that people can kind of really try to under know where I'm coming from and why I'm saying the things that I'm saying. I mean, being completely transparent, we've, you know, things have been great and things have also been great learning lessons for us. There's been a lot of times that we stuck to what we believe we wanted to do and had partners support it. And there's been times that I specifically myself as the CEO of the company 
you know, did something that I was like, I'm not proud of that. But those moments I wasn't proud of are it's what made me better and made me sharper. And I think for, you know, there's a lot of reasons as to why maybe I took on an opportunity that I wasn't fully proud of. I think as kids of immigrants, as myself, a kid from the hood, from New York, a kid that never imagined what the opportunities that I have on hand now, it's hard to say no. And part of what you're saying and being very uh, sharp with the vision and sticking to what you believe in and not allowing these huge partnerships or these budgets to steer that away is learning how to say no. And it's hard to say no when you never had these opportunities. It's hard to say no when maybe you didn't have the mentorship. It's hard to say no when you have bills to pay. But I've learned from those moments and those moments have made me better and just fully seeing it out and believing in in ourselves enough to say no and believing in our value enough to say that's not enough. And that takes practice. I think it, it wasn't, you know, who I was just six months ago, you know, so forget a year ago, it's not the same person I am today. And, you know, the practice and the the learning process of it is never ending. So it, it's been, it's it's really hard. It's really challenging. Again, I think, you know, coming from not having anything to having opportunities, it's hard to say no to opportunities, but I've learned that saying no is what brought the best opportunities to us. That is such a powerful lesson that I think anyone, <laughs> whether whatever type of leader or professional or family, I mean, you know, that that lesson about saying no and it sounds like you constantly go back to your values and your mission that you started with as a way to determine when to say no or how to say yes. Yeah. I think we have like internally, we always have this moment of clarity when, you know, now we're better than ever with it. But every time we get a great opportunity, and there's a budget and there's a great partner. And it's like, we start getting very creative and we're like, let's, let's open up a nonprofit in LA and do it like this and do it like that. And which are all great ideas and truly like things that we, we ask ourselves, like, how are we going to help our community with this? How are we helping with this? Um, and those things just go everywhere. Um, I, I always say we can help, we, we can do anything but we can't do everything and we can help we we can't help everyone but we can help someone and i think we go back to those values every single time and it's like because we start getting inspired and then we can't come to an exact idea because there's so many and we end up every single time we end up going to like who are we what are we at heart, not thinking of the partner, not thinking of the possibilities of this evolving into this whole other thing. We still, you know, want to have a vision, 
but we can't let that vision deter from what our true values and true, true core is. Um, and it, we always just go back to it every single time, like especially every time that we start feeling stagnant or just creative uh, roadblocks. We're like, wait, wait, we're thinking way too much. The answer should be right in front of us. We just got to calm down. We got to focus. We got to go back to who we are and then move forward. Our chief influencers have established themselves within their own committees. They form those key relationships with others that mean. Our chief influencers have established themselves within their own communities. They have thrived in forming these key relationships with others. Communities harness the power of connection. And we've seen this in our episodes. From Gina Schaefer to Cher McBride and nearly every guest in between, we've seen the power of community and the importance to influence within it. One day I was working and Shane walked in and he said, I'm in a rehab program down the street at Women Walker Clinic and I've, I've been clean for six weeks. Will you give me a job? And I said, no. The story like ensues sort of in a funny way. I eventually started paying him because he just showed up every day and started working. And it's funny because he's like, did I bully my way into that job? I'm like, yeah, in a really good way. I needed him and he needed me, I think is what ultimately ended up happening. And Shane ended up helping a lot of other folks from the Whitman Walker program find us. And in turn, helped me find really great teammates. And so it it didn't happen on purpose. It was very organic in a wonderful way. And before I knew it, people were joking that we could have you know an AA meeting in the plumbing department or an NA meeting in the hardware department. And most days we probably could. And then they told you your business had a nickname that you didn't even know. Yeah, I cried that day. It was really meaningful. So Mark Watson, who's one of the uh, top leaders on our team, has worked with us for 19 years now came to me one day and he said, you know, the community calls this place recovery hardware. And I think I said this to you in warm up, Anthony, you can't give yourself a nickname. And I couldn't think of anything more poignant, more special to be called. And it really set us off me personally, because I wrote the book with that name on this trajectory of, should I be talking about the folks we hire? Why aren't other people doing the same thing? What other businesses in the country do similar things to us that I want to figure out how to celebrate and talk about. So it was a big moment. When I got to eBay, I I realized and I had somewhat of a political background and brought some of those campaign tactics to that is that eBay at the time only had employees in California. And that was really the tradition. Most companies only do do employee grassroots at that time. And I thought, well, that's not going to help much. You know, most of eBay's issues were federal. So we needed to make sure we built a nationwide network. So I, knowing how passionate eBay sellers were about the platform at that time, I thought, what if we created this network? These, these are not, you know, they're not employees, but they are in partnership with us. And if an eBay seller sells an item, eBay benefits. So it's a mutually beneficial um, business model. So that certainly helped. And, you know, the reaction that, that we got both internally and externally. Now, I did have to get over the hump that this is a labor-intensive prospect you know i need you know folks to be calling sellers and 
meeting them in person and, and that sort of thing. There's a certain amount you can do um, electronically, but mostly at the time it was a very practical decision that our employees were only in California and a few in um, Utah, and we needed to talk to the Speaker of the House who lived somewhere else, you know? And so that's really how it started. It wasn't that, you know, I don't think at the time I thought, oh, I'm starting something very innovative. You know, I was just trying to problem solve, solve a problem that we had, you know? And one thing we did in one of our very first fly-ins where we had, um, we had a seller come in from every state, we gave them, seems kind of funny, but we did a booth and we had them have their physical items, what they sold in the booth, and, uh, and the, their eBay store on, and on a monitor. And we brought the members of Congress through to, to meet with their constituents in that way. And, and it, that physical manifestation, I do, th I do think, you know, Zoom is great and digital is great, but that physical manifestation of, oh, this is a store. You know, this is, this is people selling things. And here are the, actually, here are the items that this person, and, and some of them were funny, like people, I was a great eBay seller. One of my great advocates sold tires on eBay. So we rolled in a big tire, you know? And so, and I do think that that, again, we, the technology is terrific, but building these relationships, visualizing what these folks are, you know, up against in, with in-person meetings, I think can really make a difference. Yeah, you're showcasing this is not a separate economy or just some fake, right. this is yes. a real economy. And these are people living, living in your dis, dis, district and they might have a store, a physical store and sell online. We should go back to my days as a superintendent. Um, you know, one pastor um, early on in my career said to me, uh, the parents you're having difficulty finding are in my church every Sunday. If you want to talk to them, come to my church. Um, so I started doing that my second year as a super superintendent. And in Chicago, I basically copied the mayor's uh, campaign strategy around the church uh, in the city of Chicago. And I found myself in influential Catholic churches and in influential black churches, somewhere as big as 40,000 members, right? And one wow. in particular said to me that more than half of the congregation were employees of the school system. If you want to speak to your teachers or your principals, come here. Um, so just about every Sunday, uh, I was in someone's church or a couple of churches speaking about a, about a particular initiative, up I needed, my own personal story, just to get the city galvanized. And I found that interview to be really and usually helpful in building a coalition of, of community leaders, including, by the way, when we had to do school, we designed school closures. Uh, these pastors were very, very uh, helpful frankly, in getting a rally or rallying around the community to get this to actually happen. Can I give you with me one more one more nugget? And I'll include kids in this one as well, too. Both in Rochester and Chicago, I, I did a monthly radio show. And in, in Rochester, it was both NPR and the Black radio station. In Chicago, it was WBEZ, was the, uh, the, the, um, the NPR station. Every month, we would start with a discussion between myself and, and, a, and a reporter, much like you're having a conversation, then for much of the hour, we opened the floodgates. The calls, the phones were open. Uh, my mayor thought I was crazy for doing this, but <laughs> I built so much political capital in that city, uh, in both cities, frankly, because I opened myself to this kind of open-ended dialogue about the schools, because my belief is that schools belong to the public uh, yeah. and they need to be involved. Well, that's the episode. Thank you for spending time to reflect on some of my favorite interviews so far. If you learned something today or laugh, tell someone about this podcast. 
If you want to catch these episodes in full, check out cheapinfluencer.org. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a chief influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.